0: This morning, we're going to be wrapping up our uh, sermon series called What the World Needs Now. And we're going to be reading from Genesis, the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. And I'm going to make myself a note because something just popped into my head. Again, remember, the sermon's usually finished being written by about 10 (laughs) o'clock. Okay, chapter 1, verse 26. We're going to begin there. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the sixth day. So the creation of the heavens and the earth, everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was a day when he rested from all his work of creation. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. Let's pray. Morning, Lord. We thank you for this time, this place, this opportunity that you've given us to be able to gather together with family and friends, with loved ones. It brings our heart joy. To smile together, to laugh together, to to cry together. To share in each other's concerns, to be blessed this morning by, by people sharing their gifts of singing and playing instruments, and there's just so much to be thankful for. And now, as we, as a community, turn to your scriptures, we pray that you might open our ears. But, but more than open our ears, Lord, because for many of us, this is something we've heard a lot. This story. You Some of us have heard it since we were little kids, and we remember felt boards and things like that. So maybe more than just hearing this morning, we might be touched. That your Holy Spirit might commune with that very same spirit that you've placed in us so that we could be transformed into the people that you've called and created us to be. Not people that know the stories, but people that live them. Not just people who read about God, but people who show God, who reflect God. People who bring hope, who have agency, and reflect your image. So guide me this morning. so if the words that come out of my mouth are your words, words that contain a power that mine just never do and never will. Hide me behind your cross. Don't let me get in your way of you putting on display this morning your grace and your mercy, your love and your peace, your joy, your justice and your righteousness. And for all these things in your most holy and precious name, amen. So, we are wrapping up this sermon series called What the World Needs Now. It was just three weeks. And um, just kind of a brief where we are, how we got here is we talked about, well, first of all, uh, Mike and I had coffee several months ago. Mike Hallmark and I had coffee, and he shared with me this article. And it was an article written by a journalist who was critiquing the way that um, news is presented nowadays in the media, whether it be in print media whether it be radio, television, whatever, uh, internet, wherever you get your news, critiquing um, how it's presented to us. And, and in her article, she talked about this idea that that what happens is is we're robbed of three things as humans. We're robbed of hope by the way that the news is being presented to us. We're, we're robbed of hope. Uh, the second thing is that we're robbed of agency. And by agency, what she meant and what, what we meant last week was this, idea that you can actually make a difference, that the things that you do matter. And that the way that the news is often presented in the world today is that we're robbed of that. It's, just, it, it's overwhelming, and it just feels like it's just all going to hell in a handbasket, and so we might as well just start, like, packing our bags. And, and the unfortunate thing, I think, and this just popped into my head too, is that a lot of times that's actually the way the Christian message has been presented, which isn't the Christian message at all. But that's the way the Christian message has been presented, is that this world is horrible, that people are horrible, that you're horrible. uh, But by the grace of God, somehow he still accepts you, even though you're a piece of garbage. Uh, But don't worry, because just wait it out. The world will end, and you'll get to go to heaven. But think about it, right? Isn't that often the way? And And then we tag that with, because God loves you. Right? Um, And so, but with that, uh, the only hope is that someday I'll die. And I have no agency. So I would even argue that the way the Christian message has been presented over all the years can do sometimes the exact same thing that the media can do to us if we're not careful. Right? We have to remember what what it means to have good news, gospel. So then the third thing, that we're going to look at this week is human dignity. Right? The way that the the way the media is present the way that the media presents news today just robs human dignity. And so we're left with no hope, no agency and no human dignity. And as I as I read the article that Mike shared with me, I began to think to myself, actually, this this is the message of Jesus is that we should have hope, that we do have agency and that we should acknowledge human dignity. Because when you acknowledge human dignity, you give somebody agency, which then gives them hope. So what we did is we talked about this idea of confirmation bias. And remember that? All right. By the way, here's how I learned about confirmation bias. I was talking to somebody who told me about confirmation bias from that they had heard about from a podcast. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. I think I'll add that to my sermon. That was that Sunday morning. Okay, so anyway, with confirmation bias, what happens is we read the news, and then we go, or we we read it online, we read it in the newspapers. Some of us still do that. Um, We listen to it on uh, the radio. Some of us still do that. And then we watch it on TV, and confirmation bias helps us select which news outlet we go to, right? And then it also then lets us know which people we should gather up with because they also get their news from the same place. And so then we've, what we've done is we've isolated ourselves into communities of exactly same-thinking people. The problem with that is that then we all are, are upset by the same things that we're reading and the same things that we're seeing because we're seeing the same things, we're reading the same things. And so we get together in our silos, in our groups, and what we do is we actually lament rather than develop ideas on how to make change. And so in the process of our lamenting about the state of things, and here's the thing, we all do it. Don't sit here right now and think, yeah, that's how they do it. (laughs) All right? I don't care who you vote for. You do this. We all do this. I do this. One of my best friends in the world, the reason he's my best friend is because he and I think exactly the same, he's brilliant (laughs) right all right so (laughs) yeah and we get and then after I have coffee with him Denise is like did you guys solve any problems and I said no but we've identified all of them (laughs) right isn't that what we do we get together and we identify all the problems okay so we get together we lament misery loves company and so all we do is compound our misery in the process, robbing our hope. So, we as human beings, we are designed in such a way that we should want to be part of community. As Christians, we understand that we're built for community. If you go back and you look at the, this passage we read, it even begins with, uh, God said, Let's, let us create God, or let us, not create God, that's a mistake, let us create humanity in our image. And so we ch- like this is something that's debated a long time, like who is, the, who is the us? And so we as Christians, we think about a Trinitarian God and that God is already complete in community as one. All right, that's good. And so um, we are designed, we are built for community, to be with each other. The problem is when we start to actually caucus rather than commune. And we isolate ourselves from the greater community. Because here's an example. A long time ago, I learned this. God speaks to we a lot more than God just speaks to me. Okay, so we, we isolate ourselves. And in the process, and we're with like-minded people, and at, at the moment, that feels good, right? It, it feels good to get together, and the things that make you mad, the things that you don't like, someone, someone confirms that for you and says, yes, you're absolutely right, because I don't like those things either. I'm disappointed by this too. And so we go together and we're like, yes, I am, I am right in being so upset. But then in the process, what happens is not only do we begin to lose hope, We begin to lose agency because the only thing we can actually accomplish when we gather together with just our group and we enjoy confirmation bias, the only thing that we can actually accomplish is nothing. Look at our government today. What can they accomplish? Why? Because nobody will work together. All right, that's enough about politics. why is the church fragmenting what is our greatest testimony to this world it's not how right we are it's about how much we love each other despite the fact that we don't agree that was last week that's the greatest testimony what is happening to our testimony in this world today we're killing it but by God I'm right some point I got to get over myself and I have to realize that what I'm called to do is to embrace others regardless of whether or not they reflect me see because that's the problem what we're actually looking for when we're looking for groups is people that reflect us people that think the same way I think that do the same things I do that believe the same things I believe, and sometimes if we're not careful, to even look the same way I look. We're not looking at people as reflections of God. We're looking for people that reflect me, which means I'm robbing others of their own human dignity. okay so what does human dignity look like what is dignity at its most basic human dignity is the concept it's the belief that all human people all human people hold a special value that's tied solely to their humanity what makes you special you're a human being It has nothing to do with their class, their race, their gender, their religion, their their politics, their abilities, or any other factor than them being human. Why should we love other people? Because they're human. Shamil Idris, who's the head of uh, Search for Common Ground, which works to prevent violence in over 31 countries, explains it simply. To me, it's the feeling I have that I matter, that my life has some worth. Human dignity begins with the story of creation. That's the reason we went to Genesis, right there in the beginning, where humanity is created in the image of God. Human dignity originates from God and is of God because we are made in God's own image and likeness. So, in other words, when you look at somebody, you should see a reflection of God in that person, regardless of all the things we just named. See, there's a huge difference between the story of creation, the Hebrew story of creation that we read about in Genesis. And the story of creation that was being told in all the other cultures at the time because don't forget this story begins to develop as they're plucked out of egypt right and so what they're doing is they're trying to develop an understanding of who they are as a people apart from different than other people around them and so they ha- there are like has anybody ever pointed out to you like oh that can't be a true story because that story shows up in other cultures Like, has anybody, have you ever had that conversation with somebody, right? And they're like, well, other cultures talk about this, and other other stories told, yes, absolutely correct, right? So the story of Genesis is not, it's not what does it tell, uh, that's, it's about what's different. It's not, the story of Genesis isn't what does it have similar to other creation stories, the cultural stories at the time. The question is, what is different, about this story than uh, like the Enuma Elish, right? Like, which is Babylonian, I think Babylonian, Mesopotamian at least, Babylonian, right? Okay. Um, Or the Egyptian creation story, which I don't have a fancy name for, but the difference is this. All those other stories, humanity is created out of acts of violence, like gods ripping other gods apart and then pulling out entrails and all this kind of stuff. And then there's this and then there's also this idea that gods have created humans just to be playthings, toy things that they can that they can torment and they can use to torment other people and they can use to torment other gods. But in the Genesis story, humanity is created out of an abundance of love. We reflect the God in the Genesis story. When we live in a way that creates out of an abundance of love, we reflect other gods when we live in a way where we create out of an abundance of violence. Violent words, violent actions, violent thoughts. I resemble more the Egyptian gods than I do the one true God. So if we're not careful, we're trying to surround ourselves with people that reflect us, that we in them see us. And if we're not careful, we're actually doing a better job of reflecting other cultural gods than we are the one true God. But what we're called to do is to be a reflection of the one true God who creates out of an abundance of love and then sees that same God in each and every person around us. And when we can do that, we begin to restore human dignity. You see, the problem is, though, too often we treat others as objects rather than subjects, right? We objectify people. We degrade others to the status of a mere object and rob them of their agency. For years, I lived as if there was a story being written, and it was my story, and I was the lead character. And everyone else, Madison yesterday got to go— and she got to uh, be an extra on a film set. And she sat there all day long, and she said, Dad, it was a lot of hurry up and wait. (laughs) Right? And then there was a couple times where, like, she thinks maybe she actually might have gotten on camera. All right, that's the way I lived my life, is that there may be some times where you were lucky enough to maybe get on camera, but really I was the star. Right? The camera followed me everywhere. Every now and then I still come in on Sunday mornings and I've got music playing on my phone. And Corey would be like, oh, I think I heard you coming. I'd be like, yeah, that's my theme music. Right? Because like, <laughs> every main character has to have their own theme music. Look at Star Wars. But here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. As Christians, we do realize there is a story that's being written. But guess what? You're not the star of that story. God is, right? But what happens is we objectify people. Now, what do I mean when I say this? Subjects and objects have the opposite function. Let's just look at it in a sentence for a moment, all right? Just so if you wonder what I'm talking about. The subject is the doer of the action, okay? Um, For example, take the sentence, we are watching Netflix. The subject is the pronoun we, right? We are watching, we're doing something. Objects are the opposite. Instead of doing something, like watching Netflix, they're acted upon, they are Netflix. So what happens is I have all the agency, when I treat somebody like an object instead of a subject, I have all the agency on which upon I can act on them. They are just for me to use in order for me Move forward my story. So, in the Gospels, what we do is we see that Jesus is this total embodiment of humanity reflecting the image of God. If you want to see what it looks like to reflect the image of God in this world, read the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 37 through 40, it says, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. What Jesus is saying here in this parable is this, that I am... Jesus is, not me, the perfect reflection of humanity. And every time you treat another person with human dignity, when you clothe them, when you feed them, when you visit them in prisons, when you do that, you're actually doing it to Jesus, i.e., see Jesus in other people. When I rush through life, I tend to see faults in others. That's what I see. Not Jesus. If I first look for someone's imperfections, I I jettison the joy of immediately loving them as if they were the Lord. Jesus explains in this parable, this counterintuitive claim of feeding, clothing, visiting the sick and those in prison are all reflections of, of caring for Jesus. You did it for me. Could you imagine if we saw the world through that lens instead of the lens that we're being given through the media? Which le- and here's the thing. You are, we are people of agency. You can choose which lens you want to view this world through. And here's the other thing. The lens that you choose has a statement about what you believe. I think I'm going to leave that there. It takes prayer for me to be able to see others like Jesus. beautiful, precious, and worthy of my love. So we're called to reflect Jesus, right? You're supposed to look like Jesus. And so for, for years, we thought that the question was supposed to be, what would Jesus do? You remember those bracelets? Remember that? And so we thought, okay, well, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? But I think that we're called not to only reflect Jesus, but also to see Jesus in others, Right? And and so maybe a better question isn't, what would Jesus do? Maybe the the better question is this. If this person was Jesus, what would I do? You see, that that way you're not Jesus, okay? But you have an opportunity to speak to Jesus. What would you say? You have an opportunity to do something for Jesus. What would you do? All right, you want to make this even more difficult? In the Gospels, there's this story about Jesus and Mary and Joseph fleeing Herod. Anybody know that story? Okay, where do they flee to? Egypt. All right, what are they when they get to Egypt? Anybody want to say it? Refugees. Refugees. Okay, so Jesus and his family were refugees. They eventually get to come back. But sometimes we have to be able to look at the refugees, the foreigner among us, the stranger among us, and say, this person is Jesus. What am I going to say to them? What am I going to do for them? By treating people with dignity, I said so this is the beginning, I'm going to wrap it up. By treating people with human dignity, simply because they're created in the image of God, and that's what we believe, We restore their sense of agency and we bring them to a place of hope.